0: Today we're welcoming a pioneer for the paddle court construction industry in the US. Eric Loftus is vice president of the foremost award-winning tennis court builder and running track installer in the United States, Cape and Island Tennis and Track. Earlier this year, Eric announced he'd be taking his company's 50 plus years experience in construction and putting it into the new next best thing when it comes to racket sports, and that's paddle. He set up Northeast Paddle to become the vanguard for quality paddle court construction in the world's largest sports market, and to become the go-to business for private individuals, institutions, and clubs that want to build paddle in New England. In today's show, hear how Eric's life took a turn from life as a deckhand cruising around the Caribbean, to re-entering an esteemed family business on the edge of Cape Cod, to how a trip to Cologne galvanized him into paddle action and setting up his business. All this and more to come, so enjoy the show. Well, hi, Eric. Thanks for joining us on the Paddle Movement Podcast. Uh, how, are you, how are you doing at this late stage in the year? I'm yeah, doing
1: great. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, let are talking a little bit offline. We're just kind of wrapping up the year here, getting back from a little travel. We've got a couple of weeks here. We always close the office for everybody between uh, Christmas and New Year's Kind of take some time with family. So we're uh, wrapping up, trying to do some employee reviews, trying to figure everything out plan for the next year. But it's good. been a great season and looking forward to another.
0: Good. Well, we appreciate you coming on. Um, let's get straight into it, if we can. Um, yeah, yeah. Paddle in the US. It's it's been a pretty pretty landmark year, I think, watching from afar in terms of the kind of the shift it's made um, as a sport, the new facilities, the the pro paddle league, the the various kind of ventures happening um, across the pond in the US. Do you think we can say that paddle is booming in the US yet? How would we describe the the stage it's at? I would say the gold rush is on.
1: You know, I think, I wouldn't say we we're quite booming just yet because, because of permitting and real estate. So the it, it's still, I mean, it's a lot further along than it was even six months ago as far as the sport being normalized. I don't have to explain the game to everybody I talk to anymore. Mm-hmm. So there are people are familiar with it, even the racket sport community. Most people now actually have heard of it, at least in the racket sport community. You know, the... It's light years ahead of it was six eight months ago. So we're, you know, we met in the summer. You know, I was talking about some permitting and everything else. Yeah. But even since then, I think we have eight maybe ten projects going forward in the spring. So it's uh it's it's definitely starting to the dam is about to break. Let's put it that way.
0: Well, we'll definitely come on to your projects coming up and and how things yeah. are going from the business point of view. But in terms of the the paddle industry, what would you say from this year are the main kind of I touched on a couple of them, the main kind of landmarks that have um, led to the likes of you and I and Brit sort of feeling that it's now moving in the States.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it, I've always said that with this game, especially awareness creates demand, right? So, you know, my lens is really on the Eastern United States for the most part. You know, I'm reading a bit about, of course, about uh, the guys in the West coast and, you know, the, uh, the deal, university, university of the Pacific Mm -hmm. and, and that whole thing. But even now, I it's, I feel like as this, as more and more of these sites are coming in, more and more people have even played, and the conversations are happening all the time now. So there, are, the conversations are getting richer. There's I, I don't know uh, I I don't know if there's a singular event and more of the totality of it all, you know. So there, it's getting more coverage. Obviously, there was the A one event in New York. There was the uh, the PPL. There's this sort of thing, and and I don't know if it's yeah, a lot of these guys are like, "Oh yeah, I've seen that on YouTube." You know, that's really where a lot of some of this awareness mm-hmm. is going on. Everybody yeah. wants to about someone running out of the court, running back in. You know, what they don't show is somebody like hitting the walls. They go back in trying to get the, trying to get the shot over. But <laughs> uh, so yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if there's a singular event that I can identify, but it's getting to this kind of tipping point where there's so much of little things going on. You know, the mm. I think the racket X is getting out. Uh, a lot of information as well. People becoming more aware of that inside the tennis and to some extent the pickleball community. Uh, But I also don't know if outside the racket sport infrastructure, you know, how how much it's really grown into that effect. You know, I don't know if we're just all in our own little echo chamber telling everybody how awesome the game is. So uh, we'll see. Like I said, uh, awareness definitely creates demand. The more people play, the more people want to play and i've I've seen it grow by the month over the last year
0: what um what do you think are the main areas that are going to grow for paddle in the in the u s you know is it is it the club um, and operator side of things is it you know the the pro paddle league and a1 and the kind of the, the more professional level um is it construction businesses like yourself where where do you see the where do you see the growth
1: I think the investors and club operators are driving the first wave of it. Uh, I think those are the most conversations that I'm having Uh, people who have played and either they're in some sort of industry around the sport originally, or they're just Mm -hmm. a lot of times you get these guys who are successful in other business who are playing and they're like, wow, this could really take off. So they're pulling their money together and trying to figure out their first project. And I think the club, and like I said, I'm speaking from my area of the world. So just for for what it's worth. Sure. I think the club industry is going to, meaning the country club, tennis club, private club industry, is going to be reacting to this. You know, you have all these people are playing in other places. Now they want to play at their own clubs. And we're also seeing that concurrently with almost almost for the same reason, residential demand. But residential is going to be a little bit slower because no one's going to have anybody to play with at home yet. So there's not enough players (laughs) out there to really get it going, you know.
2: So Mm -hmm. if I would say
1: the waves yeah, so I be the waves would be um, the waves. I think are being driven by. I mean, it's definitely being driven by the operators and the investor side right now, as far as everything I can tell. And I think the other pe- uh, the other two wings are going to grow with it. I don't see municipal. Maybe I mean, if the sport grows to some extreme amount, you'll get some block and asphalt type courts. But I don't see the municipal market really wanting to get into maintaining these things, at least in our part of the world.
0: And what's what's your view as a paddle enthusiast and someone that's you know started a business in in this sport? What's what's your views on the the other P pickleball?
1: Uh, so what we're seeing, you probably just saw the um, the St. Louis project just launched. All the PRs coming out about that. Yeah. So a lot of the so. clubs. There, yeah, and you'll see that's a combination of pa- paddle and pickle. So mm. I think it's very smart to start out that way. Uh, there's, in new England's happening the same way because it's a known quantity. You're going to get people in the door who want to play in the cold months. Right. So now you get, get somebody coming in, you got customers right off the bat. And now you have this other sport. They're looking over their shoulder and watching people playing. And, you know, obviously there's going to be some curiosity and transfer between the two. Um, I think if you're building a pickleball only club right now, I think you're kind of missing the boat and you should be thinking paddleboard. And now we can get into some of the limitations on why that can and can't work in different places. But uh, I think that model is going to be a very successful one in the US, putting both in the same kind of private club or public club, pay-to-play club.
0: And is that, from from what you're seeing people doing that, does that tend to be kind of paddle enthusiasts who are a little bit hedging their bets and thinking, well, right now we have to put pickleball in because paddle's not there yet. But obviously, you know, our heart is paddle, right? Because a lot of these people in the pickleball world Maybe they've heard of paddle, but a lot of them probably hadn't before.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of them exactly right because you can always just put if you're just painting the floor, so to speak, for um, for pickle. And that's an oversimplification, but you can definitely put courts, more paddle courts, on top of that area. Should the market go? Like, I have, you know, a lot of these guys are pure business guys, and they're just they're going to sit there and play both. And they're going to run the metrics, and whichever one's more successful, they're going to shift one way or the other. And they're, you know, they're trying to make a run at it from a profitability standpoint.
2: Have yeah. you, have you played both sports?
1: Have I played? Yeah, uh, I've played pickleball maybe three times. Once with my mother, uh, who basically gave me a paddle and said, "Come over when I'm ready to get my butt kicked." That's how it works in my family. <laughs> and, uh,
0: Another family.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm taking some of the guy. It keeps it fun. I've taken the guys out when oh, we built the project locally to play, and I think I've played one other time with a couple with my wife. Um, I've played paddle uh, now probably a dozen times. Uh, I was just in Houston. There's uh, there's a, it's kind of a little hot spot in the United States. There's a couple clubs down in Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, I played. We didn't play, did we? Uh, down in New York, we didn't have time.
0: No, but- we did. We didn't. We didn't. It's pretty, pretty tough getting a court in New York, isn't it, right? <laughs> uh, I played in Germany
1: when we were there for a trade show last week. I played in Florida and um, where else? Philadelphia, I guess, in New York. yeah. And and actually went down to the place, the sports house place, uh, and took a lesson with the owner there to, nice. to check everything out. Nice. So I'm trying to play as much as I can.
2: Yeah. Yeah, we like to hear that. And you've definitely played like on an international level. So you've seen a whole bunch of different types of clubs and stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, hey, it's, it's my business. So I try to seek it out. I, the good thing is I got my guys who uh, are working for me out playing over in Houston. Rather than just listening to me talk about it all the time, I got them to drink some of the juice, you know, and playing and had a lot of fun. So that, I need mm-hmm. some buy-in for the guys in the company too, you know? <laughs>
2: Well, I mean, we do want to talk about your business. We want to talk about Northeast um, Paddle. And if you want to let our listeners know the story behind it and all about it, um, go ahead. The floor is yours.
1: I appreciate it. So, yeah, we're historically, you know, a tennis court construction company started in 1972. uh, The founder started in the early 70s and kind of caught the boom here in the United States as they were, as they were building and we moved into running tracks in the eighties, the end of the 1980s. So we're a fairly good size, probably the largest at what we do, at least in the Northeast part of the country at building um, tennis courts and running tracks. And that translated into pickleball, but I mean, just because of out of necessity, really, I mean, let's see, the technology is the same as building a tennis court and you can't ignore the market. So it's obviously a lot of people are playing that and having a lot of fun. Uh, and then we're just, I started, I was in Germany in 2021. And as fast as pickleball was growing in the United States, everybody was talking about paddle over there. And we've always tried to kind of be on the front edge. So it was with a, an American manufacturer uh, who builds sports equipment, you know, in-ground in, in ground sports equipment, kind of uh, goalposts for the NFL, foul ball pills for um, major league baseball and soccer goals and that sort of thing. And we both kind of was over a beer in a bar called Delirium Tremen's in, uh, in downtown Cologne. And <laughs> we were like, we got to be ready for this. You know, it's going to come whether it's going to be next year or the year after. And we both spent a little time doing due diligence. And the more we figured it out, he went his way on the manufacturing side. And, you know, I went mine on the business development build out side. And, um, you know, two years later, we were just back in Cologne again for the same trade show. And it's, even more on steroids now. So we started the company basically to take everything that we've done well in the 50 years that we've been building tennis courts and running tracks and try to normalize the business uh, for paddle because obviously there's a lot of Spanish courts coming in. People are trying to sell direct. The whole thing's a bit of the wild west right now because there's a million ways to get it. No one knows how to import the courts or a few people do. The builders are coming from all over the place. You know, Sometimes they fly in the tourist visa with a socket set in their pocket. And then they fly back, and you, you there's no after sale service and that sort of thing. So we're trying to establish everything that we've done so well in tennis and running tra- track construction, and kind of prepare ourselves for whatever the direction this uh, the sport takes here in the United States. We're pretty excited about it because the writing's definitely on the wall.
2: Yeah, um, I feel like it's uh, popping up a lot of construction companies, and and people are just really interested in being a part of paddle in some in some way. So if I'm a wealthy individual and I come to you and I say I want to build a club or a paddle court, take us through sort of the construction process. What does that look like?
1: Uh well there's two depending on whether you're going indoors or outdoors are totally different, right? So the one of the challenges on the indoor side, especially let's just say the New England area in the United States, is finding the real estate, finding the warehouse type space in order to build these, uh, build a club. Because as you know, the courts are 20 meters by 10 meters or 33 by 66 feet. And a lot of the buildings in my part of the world, uh, A, don't have the ceiling height of eight meters or 24 feet. And they don't have the column spacing inside to put these courts in. So that's the biggest challenge. If I could go up and buy all the, or even put leases or tie up all the buildings in New England that that fit that, that demographic, I would uh, you could package them up and give them to investors now. That's what's holding back the indoor process. So when you go in, the, then it's pretty easy. You, the floor's just got to be flat, level, usually concrete floor, and you're attaching the cords, bolting them right to the concrete floor. Um, outdoors, it gets a little more complicated. the The big issue is permanent um, and planning, as you say in the UK. You know, the mm-hmm. nobody knows what they are yet. None of the building departments know what these cords <laughs> are. You just come up and say, "Hey, we got a." Um, you know, nine feet of glass we're going to put up here, you know, next to the ocean. And they say, okay, put on the brakes right there. What are you you doing? You know, who's, what engineers looked at this and like, no, we got these uh, documents that are in Spanish that came from Barcelona, just approve these. And it's really gumming up the works a bit, right? So nobody's really ready for that. Uh, That even from a year ago is moving along much better. There are a lot of American engineers now taking these calculations, converting them to imperial units and uh, getting them ready for the american market so that process is there's a couple different ways and i won't get into the boring of the minutia of slab design but you know you got to put a concrete slab underneath uh under these courts at certain thicknesses and uh they have to be well anchored and well footed almost like a let's say a building or a shed or something you know and where we are close to the water there's different rules as far as wind loads you know right on the water versus if you're 20 miles inland or something like that so all that permitting is kind of slowing but you know we're in the process that so we did it this morning there's that gentleman that you described called me this morning you know and <laughs> he wants to have court um in a uh, pretty well-known place down on cape cod massachusetts where i live and we're i just sent in the docs i was like he because he's going to go and start the permitting process now understanding that it might take a while to get these go through these hurdles but if we're in December, maybe we've got to act together and we can get in there for you know, May or June or something.
0: Nice. I Good. imagine somewhere, somewhere like Cape Cod, there's going to be a nice little network of wealthy individuals with their own WhatsApp group, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I'm happy to facilitate, you know? So uh, no, it's, it's, it's really
1: exciting. The, it, I'm realizing now that um, we're, unless we scale, You know, originally we started the company to handle everything from um, DC up to my market, up into Massachusetts and and beyond. Um, And I figured at first that we would have to probably go that far to make make the business worth it. I'm realizing now that I'm not, I might not be able to keep up with local demand right right away. So it's, um, we're anticipating that and trying to make strategic investments where we can to make sure we can anticipate because we want to make sure whatever we do, we do very well and that's why it's taken us a couple of years to really kind of wade into the market and do maybe we do our due diligence. We uh, everything everything we do has to be top top. So, I can I can't spread ourselves too thin, you know. But it's very exciting because it's it's going to go from zero to you know, you know, right into the atmosphere, I can tell. As soon as those appro- as soon as these permits start getting approved, and then it's off races.
2: So that's really the, the slowest part of the process. It's getting those permits approved versus actually right. like build the building part, or in terms of like time frame, how, how long does it take to actually get one court put in something like that?
1: Well, if, if you're not, if you're not figure, if you're going to build this slab, and everything else, you know, figure a couple of weeks, you can get a court in with guys who know what they're doing, um, you know, in four or five, six days, no sweat. So that part, that part's easy uh, compared to honestly compared to a lot of the other things we build that take a lot longer, a lot more complex. Uh, the good thing about these is that there's they're, they come come in a container. They're the measurements are exact. They're set. I said they're like an Erector set. You just got you know it's it's bolt together construction. So I'm not saying it's easy. Anybody can do it, but it's also if you have a construction background, the learning curve is pretty steep. You want don't want to drop the glass though. I'll tell you that. <laughs>
2: Um, and if you could talk a little bit about where your projects are located in the States and maybe a client success story, one of your favorite projects that you worked on so that maybe our listeners can go check it out one day.
1: Yeah. So the, so we've been working, we're working on a lot of projects concurrently from right now at different stages of conception to actual impl- implementation, um, from, from, I guess Maryland now all the way up to the North shore of Massachusetts. Most of everything that we're really concentrating here is to make sure we can do a good job is in the new England States, which is uh, with our tennis court market as well. You know, so mm-hmm. we have the, the guys that um, I really can't wait to see them get going is the, the club's going to launch here in April. So um, it'll be in the Boston area. Um, we, I'm still, we're still – because they haven't done – I don't want to go and jump the gun because they haven't done their grand opening, any of their marketing yet, and their big splash. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to reveal too, too much just yet. But these guys have been working real hard. They're fairly young. Uh, they're smart. They're diligent. And they've overcome each hurdle. And they're going to be – they're going to have to hit the ground like gangbusters. It's going to be really, really great. If you, maybe when we do a follow-up uh, interview here a year from now, I can, um, I can really – Direct your listeners where they can go play. The <laughs> uh, only open public court right now is still uh, in New England, in the six New England states, is down in, in Norwalk, Connecticut, which is fairly close
2: to New York. Okay. We'll take you up on that one year from today.
0: Yeah, yeah count, count us in. <laughs> um, can you talk, Eric, a little bit about. Um, I suppose yeah who, who you expect your average client to be so obviously on the tennis side tennis and, and and running track you've had you know you've worked with the top colleges the boarding schools you know some really prestigious institutions and obviously private individuals I'm sure talk about you know who who's the average client or average clients going to be for, for paddle
1: Yeah I think the um like I said the club market looks like it's going to be the first first going so the, the investors and you know these guys uh I come from a background in commercial real estate I really appreciate all the financial modeling around it. I think it's it's very interesting, and I like when people can make clinical decisions based on the numbers. So I really like working with a lot of these guys. You know, the um, the numbers work, you know, almost every way you slice it, which is great. I think those guys are definitely going to be, they're all trying to be first through third movers right now, you know, through the market and, and, and get a footprint established. The residential market is going to be very similar to our, tennis court, uh, tennis court market, you know, that demographic, the, uh, like you said, the fellow I was talking to this morning has had already has a tennis court. We, uh, that we built for him. He's got a house in Miami, so he's okay. going to come up. We originally wanted to take, he wanted to build a pickleball court next to the, uh, tennis court. And he called me this morning and said, no, just put, just put lines on the tennis court. I'll get a portable net for pickleball. Let's build a battle court. And that's, hmm. that, so I think that's going to be very, once these guys and gals start playing at the the clubs that are in the area, you're going to see that residential boom. So that's going to be very similar to, go ahead.
0: So someone like that, for instance, you know, how did he hear about paddle? Was that through you personally? And because of he's a client from the tennis world or did he, right. did he read something? I'm just interested to in kind of your average person who's inquiring how they're, how they're hearing about this sport. So generally
1: it's well-to-do folks who travel. You know, you have a lot of, um, you know, especially in the Cape and Islands, and you have a lot of people kind of fly internationally and this and that. Um, some of the first court we ever built was for um, a guy who owned a, a bank in California, but he did a lot of business in Argentina. So we built 25 years ago, we built a heart uh, true, court of Hartrue, true, which is, you know, subsurface irrigated sort of green clay. Uh, what do they call it in Europe? It's a uh, top clay. There's a different brand name over in Europe. But, um, yeah. Anyway, it's subsurface irrigated green clay court, and it's, it's it had cement block wall, almost like the original paddle courts. And what's kind of neat about this place is it's in a very historic area of on Martha's Vineyard, a town called Eggertown, where you can't build one of these things in the middle of historic district, right? So he built in what looks like a guest house. You walk mm-hmm. through the front door of almost like this beautiful Victorian guest house but it's a mm-hmm. false front of the wall. You walk through the door, and you're in the waiting area of the paddle court. The rest of the house is actually the block of the paddle court. It's really, really neat. Wow. So, but we had no idea. Um, we had no idea what it was when they told us to build it. It was like, all right, just give us the dimensions, we'll figure it out, right? This is 25 <laughs> years ago sports here. It might be the first one in the states. I don't know. But um, so that is we're seeing on the residential side the typical client. The typical investor club guys, really in my area, have played at the clubs in New York or have played somewhere else, and now they're like they see the writing on the wall. They're business guys; they uh, they know how they know how to execute this stuff, and they're like, all right, let's let's get this thing going.
0: And you talked changing tack a bit. You talked a little bit before about the the kind of substandard processes you've kind of witnessed, I guess, in the early stages of paddle in the U.S. in terms of. Um, yeah, importing of courts and, sure. um, and those perhaps not having the right permissions or work permits to install them and, and, you know, the kind of wild west nature, which hopefully will settle down. I know a big part of what you're trying to do and have done, obviously, with tennis, but want to do a northeast paddle is to, you know, quality first to make sure things are done the right way. Um, and it's kind of, you know, you're building a reputation for the industry as well as your company. Talk a little bit, you know, I guess in more detail, if you can, about some of those substandard processes and where there needs to be improvement.
1: Yeah, it's funny that you asked that because it was I got a little bit more um, eye-opening news on that when I was down. I think I mentioned offline that this last weekend we were at the American Sports <laughs> Builders Association technical meeting, which mm. happens with um, happens once a year in the first week in December all the time. And what it is, the American Sports Builders, it works with all the governing bodies in the United States about setting standards on construction. Now, when uh, pickleball first took and people were building them any which way we stopped and came up with uh, like a pickleball court construction manual, you know, that we were kind of involved in to set the standard. We bring all the contractors and designers together and the organization, and we have leadership roles in that organization, um, essentially set the standards that the rest of the country can build. So everybody knows they're getting the same amount of quality. So this last mm-hmm. weekend uh, I was speaking um, on just to the Padel 101, a very basic, uh, overview with another gentleman about you know how the game is played and how the courts are built, and then during the roundtable afterwards, I was asking a lot of questions on how they're constructed and uh, and what everybody's doing, and it was all over the place. No, there were I realized right now there has to be some standardization on how these slabs and how this basically how the base of these things are built, what are the minimum requirements for um, mm-hmm. uh, the course themselves. Right now, you can buy a court from mm-hmm. Spain, Italy. U.S., China, and there's all sorts of kind of horror stories. one. Some guy was showing me pictures of a cord that he bought. It came in a container, and like the some of the holes were drilled where the nuts were supposed to go, the bolts were supposed to go, and some of them weren't. Like they were. It was. It was just to, total wild west, right? So, uh, yeah, you're seeing people are so excited about the game, they don't know what they're buying, and to some extent, they're being a little bit naive because. They just want to get this thing done and a lot of these developers are so price driven like well i can get you know chinese core for nine thousand dollars well you can and i'm not saying i don't know which but i'm sure there's some reputable companies but you also don't know what you're getting and mm-hmm. it shows up here and it might not be what you expect right so mm-hmm. the other the other aspect is that you know these things get caught in um In customs or at the port and people know how to get them or how the logistics how to unload the glass and how to do it correctly and if you drop something that's like you can run back to spain and get another panel you know the and the other thing is it's very true as you brought up earlier is because there aren't u.s based installation teams uh, or many of them yet a lot of the installers are coming over essentially on tourist visas from europe and uh, they come over for a few days they build the courts. they fly back not exactly papered, not exactly legal to work here. And if you're a club owner and you're doing that right off the bat, I mean, you're at risk in a very litigious society. You know, say something mm-hmm. happened, you know, it's, uh, yeah. it's just to put all the time and money not to do it right. So what we came in with Northeast Fidel is say, hey, listen, we understand the import process. We have U.S.-based crews who are fully papered. We're after sales service. If something happens, I'm right here on the phone. You know, we're coming in here. We got a 50 year track record in construction We're, yeah. you know, we're the most award-winning company in the country at what we do. And we want to make sure that your project goes as planned. And yeah, it's going to cost a little bit more, uh, not huge percentages more than kind of going at piecemeal, but there's peace of mind. And you know, that you have a project like we're going to partner with you for the long haul and it's worked so well in the other parts of our business that uh, I think, the type of clients that we want mm. are the type that we're going to attract with this business model. Uh,
0: and, and kind of, this is probably a bit early to be talking about legacy, but we're going to talk about it anyway. <laughs> um, and you know, fast forward, yeah, and not not retiring just yet, but um, fast forward to maybe when you when you do one day, um, a few decades in the future, perhaps. And uh, what what do you think if this goes well? What do you think you know you would like to say? You've achieved with Northeast Paddle. What do you, or for the industry as a whole, what would you like to have done for for the sport in the U.S.?
1: Well, it's interesting you said because
0: um, my partner and I were the second uh,
1: wave of partners and owners of this company, right? And we are very um, conscious of the idea that we are stewards mm-hmm. of this business. We may not be the last. We may not be the last ones. We're we plan on working. We both love the job. We have a great reputation. We're taking this company and basically ushering it into the next era. And uh, Northeast Paddle is a definite part of that. So uh, we would like to, if we could say we were part of the Paddle boom and that we honestly handled it well with Dignity, built great projects that still stand the test of time, uh, I'd be very proud of that. I'd be very proud of being part of the normalization and the, you know, the kind of the boots on the ground infrastructure of this game really hits hitting the United States. And, you know, not for nothing. I mean, we kind of did this because I also very much enjoy playing. And one of the great parts about my job is that I get to play racket sports and kind of rationalize it, you know? So uh, it's, uh, it's a blast. And so, no, I'd I'd rather, to, to answer your question, I, if we could bring the sport in, Establish some guidelines, uh, help standardize and build top quality
0: facilities. I'd be very proud of that. Right? Yeah. Well, you're on the way. It's good. Good to hit. Love
2: that. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about costs. So, how much does one, you know, good quality paddle court cost? Versus, if we want to put together a club with about anywhere, I guess clubs have anywhere between five and what, 12 paddle courts. What What are the different costs there? And mm-hmm. also what sort of revenue can clubs bring in, in the United States so that we can get people excited about building over there?
1: Yeah. So the, these questions are, uh, very regional. So the, and I happen to live in a fairly expensive part of the United States, right? So they're, um, but the numbers still work, you know, so it comes down to whether you're leasing or buying the land, first of all, you know, so what you're going to get, so uh, not to get too bogged down, it, but you asked for specifics, you know, so around here, if you're going to build a, if you're going to rent space, let's say in the metropolitan Boston area is a good example, you're probably looking at 16 to $25 per square foot per year. Right. Uh, So, and then for revenues on a court, you know, that model is still TBD right now. So the pickleball tends to be less because you can play outside. Um, to some extent, the demographic isn't willing to pay up as much as maybe a, a tennis squash or paddle player. Uh, pa- paddle, I think, is going to be a little bit more top end, but you can at least use the tennis club uh, numbers as a little bit of a guideline right now. So you're seeing essentially 25 to $35 per person per hour to hour and a half, depending on how their model works. Um, sometimes that is on top of a monthly membership fee. Sometimes it's not, you know, sometimes it's straight pay to play <clears throat> and the monthly membership model, which is being used by a lot of people, allows a couple things, uh, discounted court play. It's not, I, I haven't seen them yet where you get to play for nothing every time you want to play, but you're not paying the full 35, 25, $35. Uh, and you're also able to book much further in advance than someone who's coming in. Uh, so your members get priority booking, essentially. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably nice. the most popular, the best model. Court costs, uh, you're seeing, let's just say that you're bringing the court in or you're buying it here. Installed, depending on the model, you know, you have the pillar uh, pillar course versus panoramic versus a couple different things. I would expect for the court cost installed once your base is prep, whether you have an inside, um, inside uh, warehouse floor or you have a let's say a slab ready, uh, outside already built, you're probably looking at anywhere from to do a good quality court install correctly. You're looking anywhere from sixty to eighty thousand dollars right now. I don't know if that's going to hold up right now. The so many of the Spanish companies are deeply discounting their courts in order to get market share there. It's, uh, it's already becoming a crowded market for these manufacturers. And I don't know if everybody realizes that just yet, you know, you have, there are 15 companies out of Spain alone that are trying to become the number one player in the United States market. Now they're U S sales guys on the ground. There's, uh, this, all that infrastructure is developing and a lot of them are trying to build distrib- distribution networks. And part of that, is lost leader, right? They're coming in there. They're discounting their courts in order to get name and market share. Most consumers don't know the difference between any of the courts yet, so they don't. They're just looking to play. Um, slab construction, a typical court retail in my market is probably thirty-five, forty thousand dollars. So you're looking at, you know, out let's say an outdoor <laughs> private homeowner that sort of thing. You're probably looking at about hundred ten to hundred. $30,000, depending on the model you choose, um, you know, built out in your backyard. It's a little bit different economies of scale for the clubs. You know, there's some, there's some discounts, obviously, if you're, um, you're mobilizing once and you're putting the teams that are putting everything up at once. So there's, I mean, we can get into deep financial modeling if you want, but they, um, the, the numbers work with those real estate parameters and those costs yeah. and those revenue projections.
2: Yeah, that was definitely very helpful. Um and then in terms of maintenance um mm-hmm. what advice do you have to keep those facilities in good shape how often do you have to you know put in new courts what does the maintenance sort of look like
1: So the fastest component that wears out for uh, is the turf and the what we're seeing or hearing from the manufacturers and you know I, I kind of joke that it's good. It's a little bit easier for us in the U S because we're not, it's not like we're complete pioneers. All I gotta do is look at what's going on in Europe and kind of see and, and look for clues, mm-hmm. you know? So the clubs are generally replacing the turf in about five to six years. So that's the first thing you want to kind of keep on your, on your radar. Um, I would have some extra glass or have guys like us with extra glass on, on hand just in case, you know, it's very sturdy stuff, but just in case something happens. Uh at least you just have the, that in the wings, you know, there's daily cleaning and brushing and that sort of thing. But what I think isn't happening, especially with a lot of these cords that are just bought in the, in the installers take off. You never see them again. Is nobody really knows about, you know, checking the connections, checking the bolts, making sure that it's not a little bit loose periodically. Having like a routine, almost like pre-flight before you go into an airport pilot gets in the, uh, in the cockpit, You know, every two weeks, you'd be checking those poles, look for loose glass, Hmm. um, checking the connections on the lights, that sort of thing. And, you know, just like anything else, uh, you know, a uh, ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? So if you're staying on top of that, uh, your quartz are going to last, I mean, a very long time. You know, indoors, it could last essentially indefinitely. Sure. Especially the more well-built ones.
2: And you mentioned like uh, two different types of quartz, panoramic versus pillar. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about the difference?
1: Yeah, all it does, I uh, picture it, think of like a big plate glass window in, a, in your living room or your, or, or your uh, <laughs> in a restaurant or something. You, you basically have less obstructions of the glass from a viewing standpoint on the outside of the court in the panoramic. And that's much better for television. Uh, they're able to see more of the court. The pillars are a little sturdier. Uh, there's obviously less glass to worry about. There's, uh, so if you're outdoor residential, probably, especially in my area where you can get some velocity, uh, of wind, I'd probably recommend using the pillar court. Although now, you know, they just built, um, just saw that paddle guests just built a.
2: Hurricane says, proof.
1: <laughs> panoramic court in, uh, in Florida. So it's all super dynamic. It's everything's being innovated. It's all going to change. Um, you know, like I said, a year from now, we could be totally different. But the, you know, the cool thing is, is you're, we're at the beginning of it, you know, we're at the beginning of the run, you know, and seeing how uh, everybody adapts and there are a lot of smart people making smart decisions and, and trying to build the best product they can. Yeah.
2: yeah. And my last question for you um, is what does your dream paddle club look like? How many courts does it have? Where is it located? What amenities? Yeah. What, what can um, we see for for your dream paddle club.
1: I would put it right next door to my office, <laughs> first of
2: all.
1: Uh, and I, and I, I tried a little bit. We actually tried to get a, a piece of land, but while I was thinking about it, somebody went not did it. So good on them. Uh, there, I would probably say, You know, we're seeing three to four courts right now, just at the beginning. Uh, we're not seeing the big six, eight, twelve. I think that'll come, but with a, you know, with awareness. I think uh, three to four courts right here, um, and amenities. Yeah, you know, we're simple. You know, we just want um, maybe maybe some lockers, definitely a bar. You know, <laughs> some comfortable out afterwards. You know, they, uh I thought, I thought the reserve in Manhattan their pop up
0: course. But I, did you I've, those not, I've only seen pictures of them, but um, yeah, I know they were.
1: They did it really. Yeah, they did it really nicely. On you could. And very very simple and a little bit modern. I'd have to bring somebody in to kind of modern it up a little bit. You can kinda of tell that I have a little bit old outdated taste. But uh I, I appreciate it and I know my limitations. So I would have, I would have a cool one thing about the uh these clubs, they tend to be a little bit trendy and cool, you know, and I, I like it. I like the uh you know, there was you know, like Ibiza the techno music playing at the reserve and played, you know, and it's uh it was just a funky vibe to it. And obviously the courts are really architecturally cool to look at too so i would have a little bit modern you know joke with ben about it like a, a formula one style yeah, type one feel yeah. to it <laughs> yeah.
2: Love
0: awesome it. that's about it <laughs> amazing eric thanks so much we uh before we let you go we have um some quick fire questions we always ask our guests and i usually leave these to brit <laughs> i'm gonna leave them to her again i think you came up with them brit but um uh yeah far away
2: yeah, so um, dinner party guests, you're allowed to invite three famous people in the past or present. Who's joining you for dinner?
1: Oh boy. Um, <clears throat> I'd probably stay in the past. And my wife always jokes that I, my friends are older because I always want to learn something <laughs> from people, you know, like the young guys I don't have <laughs> anything to teach me. So I'd probably have uh, somebody who. Like an early explorer, probably would be cool. I think you know um, Marco Polo, Magellan, somebody who's seeing the world for the first time and uh, and being able to experience that whole thing. I'm, I'm kind of jealous that most of the world's been discovered. I guess you can drop into the heart of Borneo or something and still uh, find some cannibals and cool stuff <laughs> over there. But uh, yeah, I feel like I've born a little too late in that respect. Um, other than that, I think I think the dalai lama or the buddha would be kind of cool you know there'd be uh i always try to i'm not great at it but I always try to have some sort of sense of consciousness of what's going on in the world and i think that's kind of an ongoing journey mm-hmm. for me but um i've got like, a, lot of, a lot of work to do <laughs> a lot of work to do <laughs> uh, and then beyond that someone who has built a like a a good size business but done it holistically done it from a standpoint of you know not greed like we try to build we understand like i said that we're stewards of this company and we also employ a lot of people and we're responsible for their lives and putting food on their mm-hmm. table and that sort of thing so there's um and i probably have to do a little research on exactly how who that would be but a philanthropical businessman Who's, who's done great things would be my, just, my third guest. Just um, nice. Eric,
0: on the on the topic of travel and uh, exploring, we didn't didn't touch on you know you had an interesting time didn't you before Cape and Island um, you know traveling around the world <laughs> traveling around the world or on the Caribbean maybe it was uh, as a boat hand and uh, sailing and tell us about that adventure because that's quite a quite a jump to then getting into tennis court construction.
1: Yeah, you can see I kind of stay in these leisure activities, right? So, so apparently. Uh, <laughs> uh yeah i blame both indiana jones and jimmy buffett together as far as uh, kind of inspiring me to jump on a sailboat i knew uh after college that uh, i didn't i didn't know what i wanted to do i wasn't ready to go work in an office after for sure so uh, i was driving a boat over in martha's vineyard and i was talking to anybody who listened to me about going down to the caribbean and this couple took me on uh she was british she just from to be share she'd only sailed dinghies up in the lakes region, yeah. and I uh, had no no big boat experience. Sorry for that. He, uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, he was, uh, she was great, She was fantastic. She taught me a lot of manners, Yorkshire puddings, how to eat still. Hold on, lot of So, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, and, I, and her husband, and I kind of overstated my sailing experience and about the second day in on our seven month trip down through uh, the Caribbean to Trinidad, he realized that maybe I wasn't as good as I thought or said I was so it's like, well, we're too far away to put you ashore. So, uh, he's like, why don't I teach you instead? And I, it was great. I spent, so he's passed on now, but I learned so much. Um, spent seven months as a first mate on that boat sailing with them and their friends. And yeah, another, um, real quick English connection. We'd spent them, it was down in Y2K millennium and we're in, uh, and Caicos, and the back, we had a blown transmission in this backwater of uh, Prov- Providenciales and one of their friends was a captain former SAS guy um but he was head of adventure training and sailing oh. for the British army at the time and what a cool guy um <clears throat> all sorts of stories late nights that guy. but the uh, so he's the one who brought me over there I went to his wedding in Aldershot oh. and Took, took me to the Royal Ocean Racing Club, oh, nice. and that sort of thing. That's just down and, the road from
0: uh, me, Aldershot. A big military. Team. Yeah. Really? Aldershot.
1: Yeah. yeah. So I was, you know, I was uh, a high end yacht wow. bum for a little while and then um, eventually decided that uh, maybe I should take this girlfriend a little more seriously and uh, followed her to Boston while she was in grad school and eventually took Rocky Way, but had to go get Arrested. a job.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right yeah all right well we'll keep going my fun questions um i usually ask people their favorite food but i'm going to ask you what's the best restaurant in your city that we have to come check out
1: it's got to be seafood um the best restaurant up there let's just say in boston no i'm going to bring it down here to the lobster trap in cape cod right near me um off the, off the boat you know shares a wall with a seafood uh, factory off the boat live fish right down here you can get buck a shuck oysters on thursday uh, There, the the never never finer fresher seafood than right there so if you come i'll definitely well, take my, you. i think what, Noted. my Love best seafood that.
0: experience has been in the boston area actually i remember as a kid and i um my dad took me to, he said, you've got to go and experience this thing called lobster in the rough. I don't know if that's actually a, a Brit trying to trying to explain it or it's an American yeah. phrase, but it was basically like oh, you you know, the proper shack in in Boston on the waterfront. And it was, you know, amazing lobster, amazing fries and a, a pint of bud. <laughs> and it was just so <laughs> kind of authentic and so kind of unfussy. It was great. And that was my, uh, yeah, my kind of en- entry to seafood. Uh, maybe not the bud, I was pretty young, but uh, I tried.
1: <laughs> no, that's, that's exactly right keep it keep it fresh and keep it yeah. pretty basic
2: all right a few more questions for you eric best movie or book of all time
1: best i don't really watch movies all that time so all my movies would be from probably 1990s or before uh best book i read a book i don't know um I read a book called Shantaram. Have you ever, have you ever seen that? It was originally uh, Australian. Uh, I, t- here's the reason I say that: I tend to stick with nonfiction. I, I read a lot of learning books, and every once in a while, I'll tell somebody tells me you should really like see what's going on in the rest of the world mm-hmm. and, and slow down and enjoy it. But the uh, so this is a fiction. Well, it's actually not. It's based on a true story. But this guy from Australia who broke out of jail and escaped to Mumbai. And somehow he joined the resistance of like the um, Indian forces going into Afghanistan, and like his descriptions—it's a—it's like seven, eight hundred pages, and his descriptions of like the city and the underground life and uh, and kind of the insurgents going on—is is like nothing I've ever seen. So that that would be a book, and I—the author's name eludes me, but I would say Shantaram's my favorite non—my favorite fictional or story.
2: Nice. Um, all right, this one we usually say, what's your pre-match song? But maybe it might be, what's your go-to karaoke song? Uh,
1: you don't <laughs> want me to sing karaoke, first of, <laughs> of all. But, uh, that mute hits me. Uh, my music teacher in, in eighth grade said, I'll give you a B if you just uh, become be the MC of the show. Don't play an instrument. <laughs> you're screwing else up." Pre-match song. So I... Kind of partial to Welcome to the Jungle played really, really loudly by Guns N' nice. Roses. As I, I kind of like to <laughs> by, uh, the big scream of actual Rose yeah. at the beginning.
2: That, Amazing. That, Love it. Album, and, <laughs> and last one. That's a classic. And last one. If you could have any superpower, what would you want?
1: Probably fly.
0: Probably fly. If I could yeah. fly like Superman wherever I want, yeah, that'd be great.
2: Well, that's, that's it. You yeah. answered all the questions.
0: <laughs> Nothing more you can say on that. I think that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much, guys. Eric, really enjoyable. Yeah, it was great fun. Thank great you, fun. Thanks so much for joining us. And uh, yeah, happy Christmas. And we'll uh, we'll speak to you soon. Same to you guys. Okay, well, thanks everyone for listening into this episode. We're really appreciative of all the listeners that have tuned in so far since we began a few months back. Um, Please follow or subscribe to the show as we always ask you to. It really helps us grow and it helps us secure um, the best guests we can to have on the show for you in the the coming months. And don't forget to let us know your thoughts, as always, by sending us a 30-second voice note to thepanelmovement at gmail.com. Don't forget to tell us who you are, what you want us to talk about, or anything else, any questions you might want us to answer as well. And do check out our other shows, the Motormouth F1 Podcast and the OMG MotoGP podcast, which are part of the Motormouth Media Network. And final thing, don't forget to follow us on socials as well. You can follow us at Paddle Movement on Twitter or X, Paddle Movement Pod on Instagram and TikTok as well. But for now and for the rest of the year, until we resume again in January, it's goodbye from Brit.
2: Goodbye and happy holidays.
0: And goodbye from me. Bye, everyone.